I have been feeling recently a kind of underlying roar, a kind of roll, like a, like a timpani roll before a big symphonic crescendo. There's just been a wave building up among you. I know it. You've been saying, Pastor Peter, you've preached how many sermons now on Mark chapter 13, and you still haven't answered our biggest question yet. You haven't touched the verse, the, the verse that we've all been trying to understand since the first time you came in. I remember when I was, several weeks ago, I was introducing this, and one of you was saying, indeed, yeah, and, and that verse. And then I was talking to one of you last week, and he said, I, I was wondering whether you, hoping you were going to get to, to that verse. You say, what verse are you talking about? I'm talking about this verse. Mark chapter 13 and verse number 30, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. You've been asking that question. I know. What, what does that mean? How does that connect to what we've been studying so far in Mark chapter 13 and, oh, I don't know, what, four or five sermons that we've preached on this passage so far? Tell me about that verse, okay? We're going to talk about that verse today, okay? We're going to get there. And you need to know a little bit about the history of this verse. And my studies, I came across an entire article that was written that identified seven different views on this one verse. Seven different interpretations of this one verse. What does Jesus mean when he says, this generation shall not pass? Now, don't get too uh, worried or anxious about the fact that there are this many of interpretations. Really, one of the problems is when you get off in one place, you kind of have to compensate for other places. It's like this. If, if you were to get uh, a piece of furniture at Ikea, and it comes back in the box, and the nearly impossible to understand directions and instructions, and you take it out, and let's just say you put the instructions to one side, and you say, I can figure this out, and you just start using the, you know, the little wrench that they have and tapping little wood pieces into little holes over here, and eventually you get somewhere and you say, uh-oh, I actually don't have that piece. And so then what do you got to do? You got to, like, monkey wrench. You got to, like, okay, uh, let's try that piece and put... And suddenly the whole thing gets out of whack. Well, that is what happens sometimes when we interpret Scripture. If we don't have some of the previous truths down, we're going to start having to get pretty creative with some of the later pieces to the puzzle. And that's true here. But I also want you to understand a little bit about the history of this verse because there are many, including very significant skeptics, who point to this verse to say, you claim to worship Jesus? How do you explain him getting it wrong? He said this generation will not pass till all these things be done. He clearly got it wrong. In fact, this opinion was held by none other than a man, probably all of you know, a man named C.S. Lewis. A man who wrote so many wonderful things about the scripture and about the Christian life. And yet he called this certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Because he said, Jesus did get it wrong. Now, C.S. Lewis explained that. He said, well, he said, I don't know the day or the hour that I'm coming. And he proved that by getting it wrong. Now, is that 
your view of Jesus. It's not mine. It's not the Bible's view of Jesus. But just the idea that a prominent Christian like C.S. Lewis and many who came after him would say, this is humiliating because Jesus got it wrong. Well, friends, we better understand how he got it right then. Well, not even that verse, just that verse alone. What about verse number 32? But of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, Jesus. Do you have a Christology or an, an, an understanding of who Jesus is that allows you to look at that verse and say, yeah, that's right, Jesus? You didn't know, did you? You didn't know the day or the hour when that was coming. Is, is that comfortable for you? For many people who read that, it's not comfortable. And they use that again to say, look at how can Jesus be God when he says he didn't even know when the day or the hour was. We should just acknowledge these are some verses that we need to put our thinking caps on for this morning. These are verses that have caused difficulty for many people. But here's what I want to suggest to you. When you come across different difficult passages in our Bible, you don't need to run away from them scared. You don't need to turn away in fear or anxiety. What you should do is dig in a little bit deeper. But you should dig in a little bit deeper with this fundamental question in mind. How does this exalt Jesus? And that's especially true when it comes to prophecy. You remember now when we were first introducing this chapter, Mark chapter 13, now, oh, well over a month ago. I told you something. When we look through this passage, don't get all lost in some kinds of future events and speculation and forget that Jesus is talking to you. And he means to talk to you so that it'll change your life today and tomorrow. Don't view this like a professor views a lecture in class. But I also said this to you. I said, don't forget that this chapter is all about Jesus, ultimately. And we, we back that up Remember by a verse from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation tells us that, the, that the, the spirit of prophecy is what? The testimony of Jesus. What is prophecy? What is this chapter about? It's to testify about Jesus. It's to exalt him. It's to glorify him. It's that we would read Mark chapter 13 and not just sit back and scratch our heads and say, you know, I need a cold towel over my head to figure this one out. No! Mark 13 is that so you and I read and Jesus seems bigger when we walk out of this door than when we came in. That when we walk out of these doors this morning, we love Jesus a little bit more than when we came in. That when we walk out of these doors this morning, we're a little bit more excited to see him and be with him forever than when we came in. That's what Mark 13 is about. So as we dive into these challenging verses today, Come at it with saying, Jesus, reveal yourself to me a little bit more as I try to understand what you meant by these specific verses. Okay, how are we going to dive in to understanding verse number 30 and verse number 32? Let's start with the context as I try to over and over reiterate to you. How do we understand the Bible? We understand it in context. We understand it by what its text tells us and by the surrounding text around it. Notice verse number 28 where Ben began reading for us this morning. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender 
and putteth forth leaves. Ye know that summer is near. So ye in like manner when ye shall see these things come to pass. Know that it is nigh or near even at the doors. And then the next verse, Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Friends, you need to understand this verse in the context, not only of what is presented in here, but the context of this whole sermon. And to lead us into this discussion today, we need to understand what this parable of the fig tree is all about. What's Jesus trying to say? And the heart of our message today is using this picture, the context for what Jesus is telling us here, to gain greater understanding about maybe some verses that have been giving you some trouble. The title of the message this morning is Lessons from a Fig Tree. Lessons from a Fig Tree. Once I think you understand this picture of the fig tree, and you understand the context of everything that Jesus has been saying so far, I think, at least to my eyes, this passage, and including these difficult verses, get a lot easier to understand. Now, let's stop and just think about this picture of the fig tree. What's the picture? What's the very simple example? Well, when I was in school, I lived on my, my college's central campus for a couple years. But many of my classes were on the west campus. And so I had two options. I could either take a bus to central campus, or I could just cut through what was called our school's gardens. And it was just this wooded area, this just ornate garden. I mean, just absolutely stunningly beautiful, perfectly manicured in many places. And guess what I chose, especially when it was spring? I walked. Why? Because spring's amazing. Spring's amazing here in Minnesota. Spring was amazing down in North Carolina where I went to school. And I would just walk through and you'd see the green leaves just beginning to form. And you know that crisp spring air and you can, it smells different, right? It's just the fragrance and everything is just starting to bud and you're like, finally, finally. Now, that's the picture that Jesus is bringing out here. He's saying, here's a fig tree. Well, fig trees were all around that time. And we actually know because Jesus was saying these words around Passover, when does Passover happen? Around April. Guess what his disciples would have seen? Spring springing around them. They would have been able to look around and say, oh, cool, that's what Jesus is talking about. That fig tree over there is getting green. It was an object lesson of something that was staring them right in the face at that season of year. And so Jesus, you can just imagine him teaching them on, on what? Near Bethany on the Mount of Olives, pointing to a fig tree. Hey, guys, see that fig tree over there? You know when a fig tree gets green, you know what's coming. You know that what? Well, notice what he says you know that summer is near. That's a picture. When you see green around you in the trees, you know that summer is near. Now, how do you know that? You know that because there are certain laws of nature that you have been conditioned to accept your entire life. I can promise you that not one of you has ever seen the green shoots growing in spring, and then suddenly they turn brown and they fall off and we're in winter again. Has never happened once in your life. Oh, we've gotten some late spring snowfalls. Don't get me wrong. We thought we were going back to winter. But, but we didn't skip summer and go to fall. 
How do you know that summer is near? Because they're the laws of nature and you've been conditioned and trained to rely on them. You see the buds coming out of the trees and you say, summer is almost here. So you see that connection. Once you see the green shoots, you know that summer is near, right? You see a certainty. How do we know that summer is near? Because they're the laws of nature. That's how God made it to be. But you also see a constraint. You don't know exactly when summer is actually coming. Now, be, bear with me in the analogy here. If you know your calendar and you're looking at the exactly the date, you can kind of do I'm saying when you just walk through without any understanding of the calendar, without any understanding of those particular seasons, you just know it's coming, it's near, but it's not here. And I, I can't say exactly when it's going to be here. All I know is that it's close, right? Your constraint is that you don't have perfect knowledge. You have certainty that it is close, but you don't have perfect knowledge about when exactly it will occur. And now that you know that picture, you know exactly what Jesus is saying in this short few verses. You see a connection. When you see these signs, he's near. He's close. You see a certainty. You know that it's going to happen. Why? Because he said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can take my words to the bank on this one. And thirdly, you see a constraint. He says no one knows when I'm coming. In fact, Jesus said when I am on earth, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. You don't know exactly the day when summer is going to be here. You see the idea? Those are our three points this morning. First, our connection. Secondly, our certainty. And third and finally, the constraint on all of our knowledge about that day. Does that make sense? That's the picture. So let's dive in now and try to understand a little bit more about this connection that he's drawn. When you see these signs, then what? Verse 29, know that it is nigh. Now, we need to break down just a couple words about that, okay? The first question is, the first word I should say that we need to understand is it. Notice in verse 29, he says, So ye in like manner when ye shall see these things come. The leaves that are getting green, that's the picture. Know that it is nigh, that it is nigh. You say, what is nigh? Well, remember the picture. Jesus said that summer is near. That's the fig tree picture, right? So now he says, when you see these signs, then you know that it is near. Now, you may have a translation of your Bibles that says the word, not it, but he, that he is near. That's possible. Now, I just want you to know that that really is not a translation, it's an interpretation. That is to say, well, he must be talking about himself, so we're going to put he in there. But really, it's an it. It is coming. Now, thankfully here, don't be confused about that because we have the book of Luke who also recorded the sermon that Jesus gave. And Luke makes it really clear what he's talking about by it is near. Listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 21 and verse 29. Um, I'm sorry, Luke 21 and verse 31. He says, so likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye or know that the kingdom of God is near at hand. The kingdom of God. So what's the it? 
When you see these trees getting green, you see these signs that I've been telling you of, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Does that make sense? So Jesus is telling his disciples, and he's telling us, when you see certain signs, like the budding of a green tree in springtime, you know that the kingdom of God is right here. It's right, it's, it's near, it's at the door. Now, just, just to, to avoid any confusion, what is the next step in the establishment of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is Jesus coming on earth to establish his reign, to be king. So when is the kingdom of God near? When the king is near, right? That's the idea. So don't get confused. He is talking in context about the kingdom of God and talking about his own coming. So we see here the kingdom of God is near when you see these things. Okay, so let's look at the next difficulty here. What does he mean when he says, when you see these things? What things? Okay. What have we been talking about for the last several weeks? We've been talking about the signs of when he would come. Right? We learned about many of those signs. We learned about the persecution that would come on his church. We learned about all of the global kinds of difficulties, earthquakes, natural disasters, wars, rumors of wars, challenges that the whole world would experience. Then we saw in verse 14, we saw the picture of the abomination of desolation. And as Luke records, the swarming of Jerusalem with armies that would cause people to flee. We looked just recently, last week, in verse number 24, about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving her light. All these signs over and over and over again. Jesus is saying those signs, those signs, when you see those things happening, then what do you know? You know that summer is here. You know that the kingdom of God is right at the door. It's near. Okay, that's the picture. That's what he's saying. Now, what does he mean then when he says, these things. He's talking about what his listeners might expect to see themselves. When you, when you see these things, then what? Then know that it is near. It is nigh. It is near even at the doors. Now, let me just, I, this will help you, I think. When Jesus says, when you see these things, you know that it is near. When he says it is near, it means he is not here. You get that? When you say someone is close, what are you also saying? He's not there. When it's near, it's not here. Okay? So Jesus says, when you see these things, know that it is near. All right. Let's go to the next verse. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Do you know what? notice how he uses the same word? He said, when you see these things happen, know that it's near. And then the very next verse, he says, all these things will be done in this generation. What are these things? Okay, 
we're going to go back for a little more context. Will you go back with me to verse number two of this chapter? Because you're going to see that same phrase, these things. Look at verse number two. And Jesus answering said unto them, Seest thou these great buildings of the temple? That's what he was talking about. There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall... What's the next words? When shall these things... What things? When is Jerusalem going to be thrown down? When is not one stone going to be left upon another? When are these things going to be done? And then notice what else they say. And what shall the sign be when all these things shall be fulfilled? That was the question they asked him the whole time. When are we going to see these things done? And when are all these things going to be fulfilled? Make sense so far? Now Jesus is answering their question. He's saying, do you want to know when these things are going to be done? I'm going to show you. And what have we been learning so far, at least in my view? My view is that Jesus has been talking with an eye on two different generations the whole time. He's talking, he's been talking about events, part of which his generation would see, his disciples would see. They would see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. They would see the temple knocked down to the ground. They would see people making their proud boast against Israel's God. They would see great persecution. They would be forced to flee for their lives. They would experience a foreshadowing or a partial fulfillment or as Spurgeon said, a rehearsal of something in the future. He was talking to them. To that generation. Who else was he talking to? Well, we've been talking about this all the time, throughout our weeks. It's very difficult for me to read Mark 13 and think that it could have been finally and perfectly fulfilled in that time period, in, around A.D. 70, when Rome, the Romans sacked Jerusalem. Why? Well, because we see things that can only, in my view, have a future fulfillment. The Antichrist coming, as 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks, of standing in the temple of God, who Jesus himself will destroy with the brightness of his coming. I don't see that. I don't see that that has happened yet. I see here in Mark chapter 13, where Jesus says that the affliction of those days will be such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created under this time. I don't see a way to honestly say that the destruction of Jerusalem at a in A.D. 70 was the worst time period in the history of the world. World War II looks a lot closer to that. And Revelation speaks, in my view, of a coming tribulation that will make A.D. 70 look tame by comparison. I don't see that Mark 13 was perfectly and finally fulfilled in that generation that he was speaking of. So what do I conclude? I conclude that Jesus was looking at another generation. It was like he had a telescope, 
He was looking at one generation, the disciples that were sitting right in front of him, and he was saying, boys, you got to be careful. There's some bumpy waters ahead, and I'm speaking to you to watch and be careful. And yet he had a telescope looking ahead to a future generation when all of these things would be perfectly fulfilled. And I think, friends, once you understand that he was speaking of two different generations, verse 30 starts to make a lot more sense. You say, okay, explain it to me like I'm two. Let me try. Let me just suggest this to you. How would Jesus' words be a signal to the generation that was listening to him right there? To the disciples, his contemporaries. Well, what did he say to them? This generation shall not pass till all these things be done. What things? We already talked about that. What is the context of these things throughout all of Mark 13? The signs that precede his coming. Right? When all these things. Now, as we've been talking about, those words, those signs, in my view, were partially fulfilled in and around A.D. 70. His generation saw a partial fulfillment of these things. And what did it convince them of? It convinced them that he was near. It convinced them that he was right at the doors. You say, how do you know? Because go through your New Testaments and you'll see every major apostle say the same thing. You want to you test it? Okay, I'll give you some references. James 5 and verse 9. James, the brother of Jesus and one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Listen to what he says in James 5. He says, grudge not one against another, brethren, brethren, lest you be condemned. Why? Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Who's he talking about? Jesus. The same idea. Remember what, he said, what Jesus said here? It's near, it's even at the doors. James uses the same picture. The judge is right at the door. Stop bickering and stop fighting. The judge is right outside like your mom coming up to check on you whether your chores are getting done and cleaning your room. She's right at the door. Jesus is right at the door. James believed that. He was right at the door. What about Peter? One of the apostles who sat and heard Jesus' words in Mark chapter 13 here. In fact, he was one of the ones who asked the question that led to this sermon. What did James believe, or Peter believe? Did Peter believe that Jesus was near? That summer was right around the corner? That he was even at the doors? Yes, he did. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 7. He said, but the end of all things is at hand. It's right at the door. Do you think Peter read Jesus' words or heard Jesus' words here in Mark 13 and thought, yeah, this parable of the fig tree is being fulfilled. He's right at the door. Yes, he did. He did. What about Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles? Did he believe that Jesus was right at the door? Yeah, he did too. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. The time is short until what? Until Jesus returns. He's near. He's right at the door. What about John, the apostle, writing in the book of Revelation, one of the other ones who heard Jesus give this sermon the very first time? What did he say? Well, he begins the book of Revelation by saying this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, which must shortly come to pass, the book of Revelation. 
He believed that Jesus was at the door. So in other words, you say, Pastor Peter, what are you saying? I believe that these men would have heard Jesus' words that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. The signs of the coming of Christ that show that he is near. Those things that show that he is right at the door. And these people who heard it would have said, okay, I believe he's right there. We're watching these signs come to pass. So I believe, again, just like what we've been saying all over, there's a partial fulfillment in this generation of Jesus' contemporaries. A partial fulfillment. Jesus was speaking to them. But again, can you say that he was perfectly fulfilled? No. We've seen certain of these things that in their final fulfillment will only be seen by a future generation. And Jesus is speaking to that future generation. He's looking with a telescope into the future and talking to them too. You say, well, what does that do to verse 30? It does this. Which generation is he talking about? He said this generation. So you should ask which generation? Which generation is this generation? I've said partial fulfillment the generation that was surrounding him, that was listening to him for the first time. And which generation? The future one. The future generation that's going to see the abomination of desolation in a temple. The future generation that is going to see the greatest trouble that has ever fallen on mankind from the day of creation until that day. That generation that will see the sun being darkened and the moon not giving her light, that's going to see the powers of heaven being shaken. And indeed, that generation that's finally going to see Jesus storm through those doors and set up his kingdom eternally. To me, this fits. That generation, that future generation won't pass until everything's going to be done. Why? Because Jesus is going to do it all. He's going to accomplish it all in the time of that generation. So when Jesus says, this generation will not pass, he's talking about his own in a partial fulfillment, the, the generation of his disciples. And just like we've been studying, he's also pointing ahead with a telescope to that generation, this generation that he's speaking of in the future that will see all of these events ultimately fulfilled concluded by Jesus coming through those doors. Now, is that the only way to look at this passage? It's not. I'll just give you a very briefly a couple of other ways to look at it, just for your own edification. Like I said, there are those who believe that Jesus just got it wrong. He was talking about his generation. He didn't know when he was coming. And whoops, Jesus messed up. I'll tell you, that's not in my theology. It's not in my Bible. And that's not one that I can accept. I don't believe that. Here's the second one. Jesus was right, but it was all perfectly fulfilled in his generation. Even Jesus came again, they say. He came again in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, and we are living in a new heaven and a new earth right now. It's all been fulfilled. Do you believe that? I don't. I'm looking forward to Jesus coming. I'm not looking backward. Okay, so I reject that one too. Here's another one that is that is worthy of at least some thought. Oftentimes when Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, in the Gospels, he is speaking very harshly of his unbelieving generation of people who weren't listening to him and were rejecting his truth. 
And I'll just give you a couple notes. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. In Matthew chapter 23, right before Jesus launches into this all of it discourse, this sermon that we've been studying, he says, You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? He goes on to say, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So there are many good people who believe when Jesus says this generation shall not pass till all these things were were done, he's not talking about a time period of generation. He's talking about a kind of people, an unbelieving generation of people who will persist in every single age until Jesus comes again. And that's the generation he's talking about, a kind of people, not a time period of people. I'll tell you, I don't really see that in the context. It's possible but it seems a little bit too clever for me. It doesn't seem like it fits because Jesus has been talking to his people, his elect, his chosen ones. It seems a little bit out of place if now he's talking about a generation of other people. So if you believe that, I'm comfortable with that, but it's not what I'm persuaded on. There are other views of it that say Jesus is talking about the Jews as a race of people. He's talking about the generation of Jews that will persist until he comes again. Again, I don't see that in the context. I'll tell you where I'm persuaded. Just like I said, we've been seeing that Jesus has his eye on two different generations throughout this whole sermon. One, a partial fulfillment of his words. One, a future and final fulfillment of his words. And I think he's doing the same thing here. This generation, my own, will see a partial fulfillment that will convince them that I'm near, that I'm at the doors. And there will be a future final one, this generation, in the future, that will see all of it come to pass in final and complete perfection. If you have any questions about that, feel free to let me know, and we can talk about that more. But that's how the best way that I've been persuaded on what this verse means. Now let me just pause for just a minute here. Because if you say, well, those disciples in Jesus' day, they thought he was near. Did they get it wrong? I mean, was Jesus misleading them by telling them, It's right at the doors. You say, we've waited 2,000 years since that day, and he still hasn't come. How could they have said it was near? Well, I think we need to think about it the right way. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're driving down 94 East from St. Paul, and you're going toward the state of Wisconsin. And right before you get to the St. Croix River, you decide, you know what? I'm not ready to cross the river yet. I don't want to go into Wisconsin. That's a very brutal place and a very sad place. I want to stay in Minnesota for a little bit longer. What are you going to do? You're going to get off on on County Road 95, and you're going to go north. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to go right next to the river. You're going to follow the river as it goes through Bayport. And you're going to follow the river as it goes through Stillwater. And you're going to say, you know what, I'm not going to get on new Highway 36 that crosses the river either. I'm going to keep on going. And then you keep on going and you go past Marine on St. Croix. And then you keep on going until you go up to Highway 8 at, at Taylor's Falls. And you say, I'm not ready to cross the river here either. 
Now let me ask you something. If you were talking to someone on the cell phone and you were explaining their progress to them as you got off on Highway 95 and started snaking your way parallel to the river on that road, would you say to them, and they say, are you, are you near to St. Croix River? You'd say, yeah, I am. I'm right next to it. You know, you would have said that when you got off 94. I'm right next to St. Croix River. And you would have kept on saying it as you passed Bayport. And you would have kept on saying it as you went past Stillwater. And you would have kept on saying it since you went, went up by uh, Marine on St. Croix and Taylor's Falls. And until you finally got hooked up back to Highway 35 and went over on County Road 70 as you passed over near Pine City, Minnesota, you'd say, okay, I'm finally here as you cross the river. I'm in Wisconsin. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus' highway, if you will, has been going right next to the river. It's right there. He's right at the door. It's near. And to every generation that passes, he keeps on saying, I'm near. I'm right at the door. I'm ready to come and fulfill all my promises and make good my kingdom. And you say, but Jesus, you're not here yet. Yeah, I'm just near. He was near back then. He still is near today. And no matter how long in the Father's providence he chooses to delay that day, he will always be near. As First Peter, as Second Peter 3 says, for a day with the Lord is with a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He is near. Now what does that mean for us? Well, I want us to look not just at the connection that we see here, but the certainty. And we may get no, no further than this this morning. The certainty. Will you look with me at verse 31? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. This, this verse is such a tragic conviction of those who say that Jesus got it wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. He thought he was coming back in his own day, in the generation of his disciples. Look at what Jesus says in the very next verse. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my, what I'm telling you right now, will never pass away. Now, friends, stop and think about that for a minute. Think about everything that you have ever known about this earth and the heavens being grounded in the natural laws of the universe. Every single morning that you've been alive, the sun has come up. It's risen in the east and it's set in the west. Every single morning of your entire life, every single evening of your life, the moon has risen. Every single day of your life, you have lived according to the law of gravity. Everything about your rational perception of the world is rooted in those laws of orderly nature. And therefore, you know that as soon as you see shoots coming out of trees in the spring, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that summer is showing up and we're not skipping straight to fall and winter again. You know it. Why? Because of the laws of nature. Do you see what Jesus is saying? How do you know that I'm near? How do you know that my kingdom will come bursting through the doors one day, eventually? He said, you can bank on it because of me. You can bank on it because my words will never pass away. Now let's break this down very briefly. What does Jesus mean when he says heaven and earth shall pass away? He means what Peter means when he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This earth will pass away. Listen to what John said in the book of Revelation, another one who heard Jesus' words that we're looking at in Mark 13. He says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Do you know, friend, every single law of nature that we see around us one day will be violated fully and finally. This earth will have a terminal end. It will be destroyed. Is that a sobering reality to you? Here's what Peter says we should take from that. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner or what kind of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation, in holy living and godliness, seeing that everything's going to be destroyed? You know, friends, you don't treat a newspaper as extremely precious and valuable right before you use it as kindling in a fire, do you? You don't. And what, he's, what, what, what Peter is saying to us here is, knowing that all of these things are going to be burned up, what are we really living for? Are we living for the gold and silver that's going to be destroyed one day? Are we living for the praise and approval of men that's going to be utterly cast into a, a furnace, if you will, with the rest of the elements? What are we living for? No, what are we looking for? Peter says that. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for, wait for, anticipate new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. What do we do as Christians? We don't live for what we can get in this world because we're living for a new one. We're living for a new heaven and a new earth. Friends, Jesus meant it when he said, heaven and earth shall pass away. But he also meant this, but my words shall not pass away. Jesus says, compared to all the laws of nature that you have grown up depending on and relying on every single minute of every single day, those are nothing compared to the solidity, to the faithfulness of my words. Do you know what Jesus is really saying here? He's saying, I'm God. That's what he's saying. You say, why do you say that? Because listen to these words that Jesus is, I think, referencing. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, Jehovah your word is settled in heaven. And Jesus says, you want to know about my words? My words will never pass away. Listen to this word from Isaiah chapter 40. He talks about in comparison to grass withering and the flower of a field fading. He says, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And now Jesus says, do you know who our God is? Whose words are going to stand forever? They're my words. They're my words. They will stand forever. Friend, my question for you this morning as we close is this. What do you view the words of Jesus as meaning to you? We look ahead to those great days 
We believe that there is a future fulfillment of those days, but we believe that right now as we stand here, Jesus is at the door. He's near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is the king. It means that you and I need to be right with him. Friends, do not miss what Jesus is saying here. Are you ready to bank your eternal destiny that Jesus' words are true and will always be true? Are you willing to bank your eternal destiny on that? Are you willing to bank that when Jesus says, my words as God will never pass away, that you say, okay, I believe you, and I'll live like it? I'll lay that as the foundation stone of all of my life. Whatever you say, Jesus, I'm going to build on it. That's what he's saying. You, do, you, do you see the problem here? Do you see the problem with those who want to have it both ways? They want to say, Jesus was a good teacher, but he, he's not worth being the one you live for. He's, he's, he's got some good things to say like many other prophets do. No, friends, these words are either made by someone who is Lord himself or is crazy. Go down on Nicollet Avenue today downtown and hear someone saying, you know what, my words that I'm giving you to you right now, they're going to last forever. And you'd walk by that person, you'd shake your hand and say, wow, I hope he gets some help. I hope he does ranting and raving like a madman. And then you come and see Jesus and saying, I'm comparing my words to all the natural laws of the heaven, and compared to them, my word is the only stable thing. My words will never pass away forever. Friends, you have to choose. Was Jesus crazy? Was he a lunatic? Was he someone, a madman who needed help, like someone down on the corner? Or is he Lord who is telling the truth and that every single one of us is going to bow our knee before him and be judged on whether we embraced his words that will last forever or whether we won't. What about you this morning? What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with his words? Are you going to be ready when he comes bursting through those doors to bring final judgment on all who don't believe? and to bring final and eternal salvation to all who do. There's one more thing that you should know, and it's wonderfully glorifying to Jesus. Probably most of you here have heard of a man named Voltaire. He was one of the most noted skeptics in the entire history of the Christian church. In the late 1700s, he ranted against the truth of the Bible, a noted philosopher and skeptic. Listen to some of these words that he said. In 1764, he said, The Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. You want to know what Voltaire believed? He believed that in part through his writings, Christianity was coming to an end. It would forever be forgotten. He said, We are living in the twilight of Christianity. That was his view in the late 1700s. In 16, 1767, he wrote to Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, and he said this, quote, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of extirpating, that's exterminating the world, of this infamous superstition. He went on to say that to believe is, quote, extreme the extreme of brutal 
stupidity. That's what he believed of those of us who are sitting here today. Voltaire believed that the words of Jesus could never be established forever. You want to know the great irony of Mr. Voltaire? After he died, his house in Geneva was purchased by a man who was the president of the Evangelical Society of Geneva. And less than 60 years after his death, it was testified, you can go find the primary record, it was testified that Bibles and tracts were being stored in Voltaire's house from which he ranted and raved that Christianity was in its twilight. Now, after he moved from Geneva, Voltaire moved to another town in France, a, a community that you could still go visit today. And it said that after Voltaire died, those printing presses that were churning out his broadsides, his harsh attacks against Christianity, guess what they were being used for? They were being used to print Bibles. What Voltaire thought was the absolute height of stupidity. Friends, Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away and every theory and every kind of idea that exalts itself against the lordship of Jesus Christ. But what will never pass away is the words of our Lord, our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. Are you ready to meet him soon?